to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you have trouble pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone? Are you afraid of failure? Do you avoid doing hard things because you doubt yourself? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. I'm talking to Steve Magnus. He's a world-renowned expert on health and human performance. He's the co-author of the best-selling books, Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox. Now he's written a new book called Do Hard Things. Some of the things he talks about are why it's so important to challenge yourself, the science-backed strategies you can use to push yourself when the going gets tough, and the steps you can take to reach your greatest potential. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Steve's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Steve Magnus on how doing hard things can help you grow mentally stronger. Steve Magnus, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So as you know, I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, and I really enjoyed your other books, Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, that you co-wrote both of those with Brad Stolberg. Brad's been on our show. So I'm thrilled to now have you on the show to talk about your new book, Do Hard Things. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I, it's funny. Your work has inspired our work. So it's, <laughs> it's this nice, uh, nice thing we have going on. Well, you know, I also realized the one book of yours that I haven't read yet, The Science of Running, that's the one that I need to read. And I'm going to put it next on my list. So some of our listeners know I do this thing every day where I just time myself running a mile. And I think it's funny that I can beat my time as a kid. And so that's just been something that I've done. I'm not seriously training, but it's fun. And I'm trying to crush a six minute mile. I'm not quite there yet. And then I open up your book and I'm like, oh, good. You run a four minute mile. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, many moons ago, but I'm similar. I'm similar to you. Is I just I have the same goal as every once in a while I go out and run a hard mile, and I'm like, okay, I'm satisfied with that. Like that's okay. So I think there's something to just going out and doing something incredibly difficult that is both satisfying and rewarding. So before we dive in to talk about do hard things, just tell me how is it even humanly possible to run a four minute mile? <laughs> You know, it, it, it's got this nice symmetry about it, right? It's like four laps around the track, 60 seconds or less. You know, unfortunately, I ran a mile in four minutes and one second and spent so many years trying to dip under that barrier. But I, I think it's just this nice combination of our physiology and then our mental strength to be able to withstand the discomfort that comes along just running that fast for that long. So if you were to run a mile now, like how fast would you probably run it? Uh, if I'm optimistic, I'd give myself maybe like a 420. Unbelievable. Okay. And so, you know, obviously I talk about mental strength. So I always try to figure out how much of this is physical, how much of it of it is mental. And I, I know a fair amount of it's still mental. Like I have enough energy in the tank. I still like am able to run. I run one mile and then I run home. I'm, <laughs> mentally, I know if I really gave it my all, I should be too tired to run back. 
there's no prize. There's nothing at the end. So as I'm, I get to like the three, three quarter mark, I'm like, eh, well, you know, <laughs> I could either push it or not. And I usually turn it the side to step off the gas. But when it comes to a lot of things in life, like how much of it do you think is, is really mental versus a, a physical limitation? Yeah, no, I think a lot of it is about the mental side allowing us to get close to our actual peak performance. And, and the thing I'd say there is that we never actually achieve what we're fully capable of. There's always room for more, always a little bit more that we could have pushed. And that goes for elite athletes or Olympians as well as, you know, you or I. And if you talk to, you know, the world's best milers, for in instance, or runners, they'll all tell you that in the middle of an Olympic final, they had thoughts of like quitting or like, where, where can I step on? Where's the rock I can step on to like, let me fall and get out of this race? Because that's the, the natural human like thing is to, you know, protect ourselves to not do this thing that brings lots of discomfort. So the way I like to look at it is the, the mental side allows us to see how close we can get. Yeah. And our brain underestimates us quite often, right? Well, it has to, right? Because if it gets it wrong, like let's say it overestimates us and we're allowed to run until, I don't know, complete and utter exhaustion, that would leave us damaged and physically damaged and maybe even dead in some cases. So rightfully so, our brain just kind of protects us. And it's, it sends the alarm. It sounds that alarm and screams at us that like, hey, stop, stop, stop. This is too much well before we're at our actual limits. So you wrote this book, Do Hard Things. But I have to say, as a therapist, when I challenge people to go out there and do hard things, the most common response is like, life is already hard. Why would I want myself to go through even tougher times? Or why would I put myself out there to step outside my comfort zone on purpose? What's your explanation about why we should get out there and do hard things? So I think there's something magical about being deliberate and intentional on doing something difficult. Often what life throws at us are things that are kind of beyond our control, that we're not expecting, that we're not prepared for. So it feels overwhelming. I think when we go out and seek to do challenges, what happens is we have control. You know, in that mile you run every day, you're in control of when you say, hey, I can stop whether I should push, whether you even start. And I think when we have control over things, that's when we're actually training this like mental toughness. It's when it feels forced upon us and we feel like, oh my gosh, I can't do anything about us. That, that yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's tough. But we're not actually training that mental muscle. And you talk a lot of it in your book about the importance of having some sense of control and how much more we can tolerate when we know that we have an out as opposed to when something feels like it's forced upon us. Which brings me to my next question. What are some of the biggest misconceptions we have about what toughness is and how we develop it? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot. And that's one. One is we often think of quitting as weakness. When in reality, it just gives us another decision to make. Like it, in, in some cases, quitting is the right thing to do. I talked to world-class climbers and they were like, oh yeah, quitting is a tough decision because... I'm staring at the peak, I'm staring at the summit, and I could probably get there, but I have to do the mental calculus to say, can I get there and then get all the way back down to the bottom? So quitting is the tough part. I think the other thing that we have 
wrong when it comes to toughness is we have these ideas that it's all about like putting your head down, bulldozing through, ignoring pain. And instead, real toughness is about acceptance and opening up. So all those feelings, emotions, doubt, fatigue, insecurities that that come at you, like that's all information. And you get to decide whether it's information that is valid and useful in this situation or whether it's information that's like, ah, that's kind of like my crazy aunt ranting on Facebook. I'm just going to scroll on by that one. Yeah. And in your book, you did a really good job of explaining this with uh, the Texas football team. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So way back in um, the 1950s, there was uh, at Texas A&M, Paul Bear Bryant, a famous coach who later went on to coach at Alabama, took over this team. And he said, you know what, I've got to make this team tough. So he took them all to this middle of nowhere town in Texas. And I'm talking like tumbleweeds, nothing there, right? And scorching hot in the summer. And they went through this like camp from hell where they just put players through the toughest things. And the story goes, the legend goes that like, oh, like a couple years later, this team went like nine and one. They were one of the best teams in the nation. Like it must have come from this camp. But if you go back, only about a handful of players were left on the team that was good. The team that went through the, the crazy tough training, they only won one game that year. They were horrible. <laughs> you know, the real secret was he got better players and recruited better players to come. It wasn't the the supposed toughness training. And I think that idea sticks around in whether it's sport or business or life that, oh, if we want to get tough, if we want to create people who are resilient, like we've got to put them through hell and see if they survive. No, that's just survival. That's not training mental toughness. And I'm glad that you explained that because I hear that so often or people will say things like, you know, the Navy SEALs and we weed out the weak people. And then we know business leaders have adopted that mentality or we a lot of careers end up, you know, we we're talking about doctors who end up having to work so many hours each week, like we're going to weed out people who who just can't survive. But that actually doesn't work. If you want to teach somebody how to be resilient, we have to teach them first, right? Exactly. And I, I'm glad you brought up that example, because if you actually talk to like the Navy SEALs and other special forces, they'll tell you it's not about weeding out, right? They have specific training and teaching. Every branch of the military essentially has some sort of sports psychology or positive psychology course that teaches people how to navigate the difficult things they're going to do. And then they very strategically put them in places where they kind of simulate what it's going to be like. That's not throwing people into the deep water of the pool and saying, hey, can you swim or not? Oh, the ones who can swim, you're tough. No, it's deliberately training people to be a little bit more resilient, to be able to have the skills to cope with whatever they're going to face. Right. I hear people say all the time, well, kids are resilient. Well, they're only resilient if we teach them resilient skills or something you eloquently pointed out in your book. When you tell somebody to relax, they don't relax unless we've taught them relaxation strategies, right? Yes. I, I think any anybody with a significant other can attest to telling someone to relax does not work. It backfires, right? It sends the signal that, hey, I'm I look really stressed. What's wrong? So I, I think the problem we often have 
is we don't teach before we train. And we just think that these skills are like somehow genetically ingrained and that we should know how to navigate like the utter chaos that is often human life. And that's not how it works. You talk to the world's best athletes, they didn't, you know, they didn't come out of the womb or start their sport with like the ability to come through the clutch in the clutch. They had to practice over and over and over again to train that skill to almost ingrain that their mind now thinks, oh, I can go this other pathway instead of defaulting towards the easy path. And another myth that you debunk has to do with confidence and how so often we think that if you're bragging on Instagram, in fact, you call it this Instagram version of confidence, we think that that means that you're mentally tough, but that's not really the case, is it? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I know you've written brilliantly on this um, as well as that often like that false version of confidence works really well on simple things that we can already do. You know, if I'm getting up and giving a, I don't know, a talk to colleagues at work, sure, like faking it will help, you know, because I'm comfortable around those colleagues. If I try to do that without the preparation in front of an audience of 10,000 people, I'm just going to go up there and be like, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. Like, I'm not prepared for this. Real confidence demands evidence. So it's developed in doing difficult things. And it's not always developed in doing difficult things and succeeding. You can, you can obtain confidence from failing, right? Because you put yourself in the arena, said, hey, this is what it's like. I've been here before. Next time I know what to expect and can be better prepared. So I think, unfortunately, in society, we have this tendency to kind of like prop up the external which is often this like external bravado and confidence that you see on Instagram that makes it look like, hey, I'm doing the hard thing. But the real confidence is, is what I'd call quiet. It's you, you just know. You know you've put in the work. You know it could go well, it could go wrong, but like you're prepared to do what you have to do. Yeah, I think sometimes admitting your limitations or saying I'm nervous about something doesn't mean that you're weak. It just means, hey, this is this is what's going on right now. And sometimes it takes a lot more strength to say I'm struggling over here than to pretend like you have it all together. Exactly. You're spot on. You know, I was talking to a, a good friend who was a former athlete of mine who also went into the military. Um, and he was telling me before they went through their like simulated survival training, essentially. You get dropped off in the woods and told to survive off of plants and animals, right? The people who went in and were like, oh, I got this. Like, this is a piece of cake. Like, all that dissolved once they were out in the woods, right? It was the people who were like, okay, like, this is going to be difficult, but I'm going to have to rely on my training. I prepared for this. It's like that facing reality that allows us to get through things. If if we have this false bravado, like your brain's going to figure it out. It's going to sense when, you know, expectations and reality don't align. And if they don't align, it's going to go into this freak out, panic, survival mode. When people are bragging like, hey, this is going to be easy. Do you think that they really think that or are they just putting, saying that out loud, but their brain's really telling them, oh, I don't know if you can do this? Yeah, no, I think it comes a lot of, uh, from a lot of insecurity in the sense that they think the tough right thing to do is to like puff up their chest and have some bravado, right? Because that's kind of what we've told society. Like you have to be confident, you have to be tough, like you have to be externally strong. But real toughness is acceptance. 
right? It's it's accepting the difficult thing. It's accepting that you might fail. It's accepting that you might even struggle or have doubts. And that's okay. Once you have that acceptance, you can actually navigate it. When you deny reality, you can't really navigate it. So how do we manage that inner voice in our heads so that we can do hard things and do our best? Yeah, I think this is one of the most fascinating things is because we all have, you know, these doubts and insecurities. As I uh, said in the book, if you talk to world-class runners, every single one of them will tell you that they have this, this voice in their head that is screaming at them to stop. And it's the same regardless of whatever challenge we're taking on. And I think navigating that inner voice is about creating the space so that you can either learn to listen to it or learn to shift and steer it. And there's a lot of good research-backed ideas uh, that help us this, one of which is called creating psychological distance. If you watch performers, sometimes they do say things out loud. Tennis players are notorious for this, right? Between points and matches, like you can watch on TV and they're, they're talking themselves up. Well, why do they do this? Simple, because research kind of shows that when we are, we're externally, when we're talking out loud, it's almost like our brain interprets it a little bit as if it's a stranger giving us advice. And just like, you know, the common advice you see here in ther- therapy, which is like, well, what would your friend tell you? This is just another way to create that psychological distance that kind of snaps you back into reality and doesn't cause you to narrow in on like, oh my gosh, this is the hardest thing in the world. How am I going to get through this? Yeah, you know what I found during the pandemic when we were all wearing masks? Like I was kind of talking to myself under my mask when I'd go do something. (laughs) Now that we've taken our masks off, I had to be more cognizant of the fact that I'm walking around talking to myself. But there's something really powerful about saying things out loud, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And as I said, there's some there's some interesting science behind it. But I think, you know, I discovered this again in my experience as a runner is like, I just remember the first time I did this because it, it, when you're in any endurance sport, you're you're navigating that like inner devil and that inner angel on their shoulder. And it's like this constant back talk. If you could hear it out loud, as you know, you'd think maybe the person was crazy, but that's just normal. So I remember it specifically one race. I was just like not feeling good. I was having these doubts and I just start talking to myself in the middle of the race out loud. And it, 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 it like, I'm sure my competitors thought I was nuts, but it snapped me back into reality because I'm like, Hey, wait a minute. You're talking like you're not out of breath. Like you've got more in you. And it, and it has this weird way of like bringing us back to like, oh, okay, you're okay. It's not a, it's not a big deal. You've got this. I'm going to try that tonight when I go running. You know, too, you've probably done this when you look at, uh, you know, your time afterwards, you could have an app that gives you the neat graph that shows you your speed. Mine's usually way up and way down. And I can remember like what I was thinking, you know, I get to the half mile mark and I'm like, yes, I made it. And I speed up a little. And then I'm thinking, no, you can't keep going. And you can see my speed dip. And then as my thoughts are like that devil and that angel talking back and forth, you can see it. (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. That's why I love, you know, I'm biased, but I love running for this example because you get to see how impactful those like doubts are and that inner voice is because you do, you you take action. Sometimes your action is to slow down. So to me, it's like if we can figure out how to navigate those and kind of disconnect that voice from, oh, 
like here's that that inner devil. I need to now like slow my pace down because I'm not sure if I can make it all the way. If we can figure out how to navigate that, we're going to be able to perform better. And another simple strategy that you talk about in the book is just instead of saying I, but to say you and switching that makes a difference. Right, it does. You know, there's some wonderful research um, by a researcher named Ethan Cross, uh, who's done some phenomenal work, which essentially says if you switch from that, that I to you, you're creating that psychological distance again, right? It's almost like your brain interprets it as like, oh, this is someone else speaking. This is another voice speaking. Maybe I should listen to this one instead of the one that is like stuck telling me to slow down, to panic, to freak out, et cetera. So again, there's these like simple tricks that almost like you're playing with your mind to get it back on track and not have it like spiral out of control. And we all have that, right? That inner committee that meets. So whether you're about to walk into a meeting with your boss, you're about to do something kind of scary, about to go running, whatever it is, all of these thoughts of, yes, I can do this. No, I can't. How do I? And so any tricks I think that we have to say, okay, this is normal, first of all, because sometimes we think, gosh, everybody else is confident except me, or there's no way I can do this. I don't belong here. And when you start having those thoughts, it can easily spiral, can it? Yeah, exactly. And that's what it is all about. To me, like toughness is like, how do we stop that avalanche? How do we stop that spiral? And a lot of it is like awareness, but then it's also like creating that space to have what I kind of call like, instead of that that panic conversation, a calm conversation, which is you're trying to slow things down because when you slow things down, you take away some of that momentum. Because what often happens is it's like, you have that feeling, that anxiety, that stress, and then it jumps straight towards like all those doubts. And then before you know it, you have that urge to act, which is like escape, run away, slow down, like get me out of here, protect myself. And if you can create some space between things, slowing down the world, creating some psychological distance, then you can actually deal with the thing. It's not that it goes away. It's just that now you can have that calm conversation that is like, hey, is this really something that I should pay attention to? Is this really something that like should cause me to like panic and freak out and not want to step out on the stage? And when you have that conversation, you put yourself in power and control. Yeah, so let's talk about the emotional aspect because sometimes when our anxiety spikes, rather than figure out how to manage our anxiety, we sort of exit the situation because that's the quickest fix. If it's like, oh, I have to have this difficult conversation with somebody, I'm anxious about it. Rather than having the conversation, I think, ah, I'll just leave or I'll just won't talk about it or I'll avoid that thing that's making me anxious. And that's a quick fix, but we don't solve the problem. Uh, how do we deal with our, our emotions? How do we get a better handle on managing them and trusting that it's okay to feel uncomfortable? Yeah, I think this is one of the biggest kind of disservices that we've seen in our culture is that we're often taught to like ignore our emotions and to like push them away, you know, even little kids, especially little boys are told like no crying in sports or whatever have you. And the thing is, emotions are just a way for our body to communicate, right? It's to tell us, hey, you might want to pay attention to this or hey, this might be a dangerous situation. Now, the thing is, our body sometimes gets it wrong, right? It hits the alarm button, the panic, the anxiety button when we don't need that, as we've discussed throughout. It's like that protective mechanism. So to me, instead of pushing away your emotions, the key is like get comfortable and understand the language they're speaking. 
Because if you understand the language that they're speaking and the message they're communicating, you can decide whether it's something, hey, I should, I should heed this warning or, hey, you know, not, not today. And I think there's a couple different tactics to do that is first learn how to sit with emotions and then contextualize and describe them, right? And in the therapy world, as you know, like there's all sorts of great resources for like taking emotions and adding context to them. My wife is a, a elementary school teacher, so she's brilliant at this because every single one of our first grade kids, whenever something bad happens, they have like one descriptor. They'll say, I'm sad. And sad could mean like dozens of things. And at that level, she has to teach them like, well, what kind of sadness is it? Like, is it, you know, sadness because of this or is it more of this other word over here? In the same way first graders do, I think we all should do. Like, expand your vocabulary. Name the thing. Because once you name it, then you can say, okay, this is what it's trying to do. This is what I'm trying to, you know, understand out of it. And you can deal with it. I love that too, because I know that even as adults, a lot of us have trouble coming up with feelings. When I do a workshop, sometimes I'll have the audience, I'll say, give you 30 seconds. Name as many feeling words as you can. They average about five. These are really smart people that have, you know, prestigious jobs. And when they sit down and they think, oh, happy, sad, mad, you know, and then we kind of run out of feeling words to even describe what emotions that we have. But it really does help our brain and our body make sense of what's going on when we can just put a label on it. Exactly. No, I think it's, again, it's like we have this wonderful vocabulary, but so many of us don't use it. And if we can just understand the nuance of it, we're in a better place. The other thing, sorry to bring this back to running, but that's what I like to do. I'm as fine a, with that. <laughs> as a runner, you know this. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you go out and run, you know the di- difference between maybe pain that signals a potential ener- injury and pain that signals, oh, this is just discomfort. Like, I'm going to be okay. And you had to learn that difference. The same thing applies to every single other emotion we have, right? If you can understand the nuance behind it, then you know, okay, this is a warning I should heed. And this is a warning that, oh, I can let float by. Yeah, I like that example because so often we, you know, anxiety. Sometimes we can tolerate anxiety, but it doesn't mean the building's on fire. But if you're anxious because you sell smoke, by all means, get up and run out of the building. But if you're anxious because you are sitting through a meeting and you want to ask a question, that's anxiety you can tolerate. Exactly. I think that nuance is so important and something that that is lost on so many people. And so another thing you talk about in the book is the importance of finding some kind of like meaning, purpose, and how that helps us do hard things. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned this at the beginning, right? When you were running your mile and you get to three quarters of the way through and you're just like, oh, it's just me out here. Like, what's what's the big deal? No one's going to know. When we have meaning behind things, it almost, it's like our superpower. It allows us to get closer to whatever performance level we're physically capable of. And this doesn't just apply to physical things. It applies to everything else. When we have meaning behind our work, when we have meaning behind our pursuits, then it allows us to persist longer. It allows us to burn out less and do the work um, over a longer period of time. So, Whenever you can find purpose and meaning behind the things that you're doing, you're in a much better spot. So how do we find purpose or how do you find meaning in those hard things that we're doing? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a very difficult question. I'm sure one we could spend a lot of time on. But to me, it's 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 pretty simple. Is make it about something more than just yourself. Mm. So, what role does this play in your life? You know, how does this help others? In my in running for so long, it was about like supporting my team and like being there for other people and helping them get through things. In my own in my writing life, whenever I'm stuck and maybe have writer's block, right? It's very easy to be like, oh, poor me. Like I'm just gonna put this away for a while. But then I think of, well, why am I writing? It's not just for a paycheck, it's just not for myself. It's because I feel passionate about these ideas that they're going to help someone else. So I've got to figure out how to communicate these better, how to get through this block, because like I might, you know, help or save someone's life potentially. So having some meaning behind your pursuits is uh, incredibly valuable. I agree. I guess finally, too, another really important thing that you touch on in the book is that it's not just about making ourselves tougher internally, but sometimes we need to modify our environment to set ourselves up for success. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think this is one of the most important and surprising things, really, is that we often think about toughness as like an individual characteristic. It's like, oh, I have grit and like I'm able to navigate this stuff. But what research and practice clearly shows is if we're in an environment that supports basically our psychological needs that makes us feel like we belong, that gives us some autonomy, that uh, allows for us to demonstrate some sort of competency. When we're in those environments, we persist longer, we're able to navigate difficult things, we see higher levels of post-traumatic growth, adapting to stress, all of those good things. Because like the environment sets the stage. I can be individually as tough, quote unquote, tough as I think I can, or the toughest person in the world. But if I don't have people supporting me, if I don't have like a community that I feel like is is part of who I am, then it doesn't matter. So, so much of being tough is setting yourself up with the right environment and the right people around you. I think that's such an important message for teachers, leaders, parents, because I'll, I'll get a lot of people that will say like, oh, I need to toughen my kids up or something like that. But then they're really talking about that sink or swim thing as opposed to how do we create an environment that really nurtures people and helps them grow? Yeah, you know, the the research on parenting is fascinating because so many people think that like, oh, I'm going to create this like disciplinarian approach and my kids will be like tough and all that stuff and discipline. And it, it the research shows that you can't have high demandingness without high responsiveness. You need the high responsiveness, the care, the meeting your ch- children's needs, et cetera, um, to be able to develop like those strengths and those qualities. And that comes back to, again, that environment. You see the same thing in sports. Tons of research, tons of experience where it's like the, the best teams, the ones who come through in the clutch are the ones that have nurturing environments. And those nurturing about environments, why does that create tough people? Because you know you can take risks, you can potentially fail, and you're still going to be okay. Those people aren't going to abandon you or punish you or get rid of you. Like you, to, In order to take risks, you need that secure environment. So create that nurturing environment and it'll allow people to do really difficult things. 
I love that part of your book too, when you talked about the coaches that stand over their players screaming at them in practice, and then they expect them to go out there and be able to make good decisions for themselves out on the field. It's not really how it works. They, they need to be able to have room to grow in practice and, and practice things so that they can get out there and see what works and fail on their own so that they can succeed in a game too. It, exactly. It comes back to that teaching part, right? It might seem great in the moment where you're standing over someone screaming at them to finish or perform or what have you. But inevitably in life, we're going to face things where it's us alone out on the field, in the boardroom, whatever, in the classroom by ourselves. And in order to navigate those situations, like we have to have those tools. How do you create those tools? You practice them. You put yourself in situations where you potentially fail. You put yourself in situations where it's really uncomfortable and you just have to figure out how to find your way through in a safe, secure environment. Well, wise advice, Steve Magnus. Thank you for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. I hope all of our listeners go get a copy of Do Hard Things. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the episode where I'll break down Steve's mental strength building strategies and explain how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Steve's mental strength building strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, accept that you might fail. So often I hear people say things like, failure isn't an option. But of course, it's not exactly a choice. Sometimes you will fail. Telling yourself that failure isn't an option doesn't make you more likely to succeed. Instead, it just convinces you to avoid doing hard things. The only way to avoid failure is to avoid trying. A healthier stance is to just remind yourself that you might fail and you can handle it if you do. Then you won't waste tons of energy worrying about whether you might fail. Instead, you can put that energy into doing your best to succeed. Number two, talk to yourself out loud. Steve says talking to yourself out loud creates some psychological distance, and that can take a lot of the emotion out of the equation. We've talked about psychological distance on the show before, like when we discussed how calling yourself by name does this too. The reason this works so well is that it can help you have a healthier inner dialogue. You know how it's often easy to give a friend advice when they're struggling with what to do? Yet when it comes to your own situation, you can't make a decision? That's because your emotions cloud your judgment and make it tougher to know how to proceed. Creating psychological distance is sort of like when you become a fly on the wall and you can see yourself from a distance without being all entangled in your emotions. And number three, create a nurturing environment. Quite often, people think that they need to create a harsh environment that toughens themselves up, but that's not true. It's important to create a healthy environment if you want to thrive. In fact, the last thing you want to do is waste your energy battling temptations or dealing with toxic people. When you're in a healthy environment, you'll have the mental energy that you need to focus on more important things. Keep that in mind and ask yourself once in a while what you can do to establish a healthier environment for yourself. And make sure you're creating a nurturing environment for your kids too. That doesn't mean you can't allow them to face tough challenges, but it does mean you don't need to go out of your way to expose them to harsh things just to try and toughen them up. So those are three of Steve's strategies that I highly recommend. Accept that you might fail, talk to yourself out loud, and create a nurturing environment for yourself. If you want more tips, check out Steve Magnus's new book, Do Hard Things. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. 
If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.